Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Tim Welsh, the Vice Chair for Consumer and Business Banking at U.S. Bank. Tim is an experienced leader in banking and business strategy. In his role with U.S. Bank, he leads a team of more than 25,000 and was previously a senior partner at McKinsey and a member of their shareholders' council. Tim's also a well-respected philanthropist. He serves on many boards, including Alina Health, the Constellation Fund, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and is a member of the Global Board of Advisors for Operation Hope. If that wasn't enough, he even makes time to be an advisor to our efforts here at Scholars of Finance, and he does much more. In this episode, Tim and I do a deep dive on his perspective on leadership and the importance of individual purpose, including how we can find our purpose and align our purpose to the work we do in finance. He also shares his perspective on banking, innovation, and on managing our time. We covered a lot of ground, but we barely got to scratch the surface of Tim's experience and insights. So I hope you find this conversation as impactful as our team did. And now, without further delay, we bring you Tim Welsh. Tim Welsh, sir, what a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. First of all, how are you and where are you calling in from? Great to be with you, Ross. You know that I'm a huge fan of you and your work. I think you really are shaping a generation and it's a pleasure to be with you. And I'm in Minneapolis at the moment where we've got 15 inches of snow in the last 24 hours or so. So we're digging out up here. Gosh, well, I'll be keeping you on our thoughts and prayers. I'll be visiting Minnesota in about a month, and I'm hoping some of that snow has a chance to melt. (laughs) I'm not sure how much is going to melt by then, but we can be hopeful. (laughs) Tim, we only have limited time, and you have deep tomes of wisdom and insight to share that we want to dive into today. I want to jump right in. To start off, can you share with our audience a brief overview of the story of Tim Welsh? Well, a couple of stories, I think, Ross, that I generally share to help illuminate a little bit about who I am. The first story is, if you had known me in college, you would have thought that there was a very good chance that I was going to be a Catholic priest. And you would have thought that because I thought that. I was president of the Catholic Student Center. I was taking lots of theology classes. I was actually visiting the seminary, going through a discernment process all the things that one does if one is kind of expecting to be a Catholic priest. And sometime early in my senior year, I decided that that was not the right path for me. But then, Ross, I was left without a job. There I am, senior in college, no idea, because path A was a pretty unique path. I had no idea what the next path was. And an example of, in my words, grace, I bumped into my college roommate walking across campus one day, and he says, Tim, you got to come to this presentation tonight. It's about McKinsey. I said, what's McKinsey? He said, it's consulting. I said, what's consulting? He said, well, just put on a tie, meet me at the presentation, just do what I tell you. Now, John's a dear friend to this day. And so I did what he told me. I showed up by knowing obviously nothing about this. And I was really struck by the recruiter who said, in order to succeed at McKinsey, all you have to do is like helping people. 
And I said, well, I actually don't know anything about this consulting or McKinsey thing, but I wanted to be a Catholic priest because I wanted to help people. And so why don't I try this path? And lo and behold, I was fortunate enough to spend almost 27 years being able to serve clients who were gracious enough to allow me into their life. And many of those people to this day are dear friends. So that's one story, Ross, that gives you a little bit of a vignette. The second story is that fast forward 10 years or so, I'm in the McKinsey office in Minneapolis, and we get a call from Catholic Charities in Minneapolis from the board chair who says, hey, we're going to launch a strategic planning process, and we would be interested if McKinsey wanted to do any pro bono consulting with us to help us through this process. And the partners who are wonderful human beings, they were all kind of too busy at the time to be able to do this with client work. But I happened to hear about this. I was not a partner at the time. And I said, hey, guys, I'd be quite interested in this. And, you know, people kind of said, well, you're not a partner. It's not typical that non-partners would do this. And maybe you should just focus on your client stuff. I said, guys, I totally get that advice and really appreciate the wise counsel. But what you don't know is that I was adopted from a Catholic charities orphanage. And I don't think that this is a random call. So with your blessing and support, I'm going to go do this. And Ross, that was a huge eye-opener for me because, first of all, I got to give to an organization that had literally given me a home when I had no home. But also, it helped me realize that the consulting skills that I have could be applied in the community. And because of that work, I've spent now the better part of 25 years very actively involved in the community using my consulting skills and now my finance banking expertise to be able to support a whole lot of community efforts as well. Those are not your typical resume stories, Ross, but I think those give you a little bit of perspective on who I am and what gets me up in the morning. Tim, I appreciate you sharing your story in three incredible anecdotes that I think illuminate a lot about you, share a lot of really important contexts and are, of course, very, very memorable. What I'd love to hear is your time at McKinsey, these these 27 years you spent at McKinsey, you joined there as an entry-level analyst and became one of the most senior executives at McKinsey. Can you speak to what that 27-year journey was like at the firm? You know, I think it comes down to, for each of us, why do we do what we do? What is our sense of purpose? And for me, as these stories alluded to, it was always about how do I help the people around me be the best version of themselves? How can I support them, whether they were my clients or my colleagues? And if you have that mindset, you're always looking for ways to try to be helpful. And for me, it was the world's fastest almost 27 years because what I was doing, Ross, all the time was just trying to connect deeply with my clients, get to know them as human beings, figure out how I could be on a journey with them, supporting them in things that they wanted to do. And similarly, how I could mentor and coach and support my colleagues, right? And I got a chance, just as a simple example, you know, the last 10 years or so of my time at the firm, I was leading our learning and development functions. I was very involved in our people strategy. And that was an incredible gift. Because I got a chance to shape at a structural level and then very much at an individual level, I got a lot of chance to coach and support my colleagues. And, you know, I'm grateful to this day that so many clients and colleagues allowed me into their life. 
And I like to think that there are a few people out there who are just a little bit better off because I was able to support them because that's what I'm trying to do. And Tim, what exactly were your titles at McKinsey and what was your day-to-day by the time you had left? Different roles at McKinsey. I was at the time called a director, now called a senior partner at McKinsey. I would have been elected to the board of directors called the Shareholders Council at McKinsey. I was in charge of what's called the Global Learning and Development Program. So those were my formal titles. I think one of the most fun titles I had over time also was being the head of the Minneapolis office, which was an enormous joy and privilege. But I, I think in all of that, Ross, those titles are irrelevant. If you're not making a difference in people's lives, you don't get any of those titles. And so from my perspective, those are not the goals. Those are the outcomes of having trying to be helpful to your clients and your colleagues. Right. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate the healthy reminder. I'm sure a lot of people listening are like astounded by that, the level of leadership that you have achieved in your career. Can you share a little bit about your role at U.S. Bank today? What do you do at U.S. Bank today? And how would you compare and contrast your role at McKinsey and now at U.S. Bank today? So I have the privilege today of being in a role called Vice Chair of Consumer and Business Banking. So Ross, this is a group of about 25,000 people or so who are responsible for all the things that a typical consumer like you or I would think of in banking mortgages, auto loans, checking accounts, branches, stuff like that. And our group also works with small businesses on similar kinds of things. And at some level, you could say, well, these are fundamentally different things. Being a consultant versus leading a group at a bank, they seem on the surface to be disconnected or very different. But in fact, I would note that they are remarkably similar. A big reason that I joined U.S. Bank, arguably the primary is that U.S. Bank is a very purpose-driven organization. When I wake up in the morning, I turn on my computer, it says, we invest our hearts and minds to power human potential. We are trying to make a difference in the lives of families. We're trying to help businesses prosper, right? It's identical, Ross, to what I was doing as a consultant. I was trying to help my clients achieve their full potential. I was trying to help my colleagues achieve their full potential. I'm now at a bank It has exactly the same purpose, trying to make the world a little bit better, trying to help people achieve their goals. And I'm excited that I get to spend time with this group of 25,000 folks who wake up literally every day seeing the same thing on their computer. And we talk incessantly about the fact that we know we have made a difference when we have helped someone achieve their dreams in some way. And while our checking accounts and mortgages, what they are, are mechanisms to help us achieve that sense of purpose. So it's actually at the highest level, Ross, there are remarkable similarities. As you dig deeper, you know there are some obvious differences, but I think it's important not for the differences to override the vast, vastly important similarities. It's interesting. I, I would imagine with a consultant's mind, you view an organization as a system of right. people with inputs and outputs. <laughs> I can just think of any of our college students who are considering interviewing at consulting and trying to imagine the decision tree for the cases they're preparing for, yep. thinking through the analysis of these two different businesses. In your current role with U.S. Bank, you mentioned you lead a team of over 25,000 people. Again, at McKinsey, you were a director or senior partner on the board of directors, the shareholders council, in these incredible leadership roles that most of us listening, myself included, could only imagine. How would you describe your leadership style? And what are some of the unique challenges and approaches that must be employed when you're leading at such a high level with so many people? 
Well, you're kind to say all these things, Russ, but from my perspective, this is not about what titles does Tim achieve or not achieve. I think the most important thing is how do I help my the people around me be their best self, achieve what they're trying to do? And I think this is really important because one of the things I learned when I was leading learning and development at McKinsey is there is a huge science around helping people achieve their full potential, right? This is not like stuff Tim just makes up. There is real science around how do you help people identify their own sense of purpose, who they are, what drives them, et cetera. How do you create an environment where they feel safe, where they feel comfortable being themselves? You know, the work of Amy Edmondson on psychological safety, the work of Adam Grant on generosity, giving and taking. How do you create that environment so someone articulates their sense of purpose and then is able to say, okay, I feel safe in this environment. I'm surrounded by people who are generous. I don't have fear, the work of Bob Keegan in this area and others, so that I can really bring my whole self to work and be my best self. So, Ross, what I'm trying to do is help the people around me thrive using the insights and perspectives that I have gained from lots of other much wiser people than me to create an environment where people are astounding themselves every day when they are able to achieve things that they never thought possible, right? So my goal is to help raise people's aspirations for themselves, create an environment where they feel supported, and then to share with them in the joy when they say, oh my goodness, Tim, I've done something or we've done something as a team that we never thought possible. And it made a difference in the lives of somebody else. And it's really meaningful to us too, right? That's, I think, the role of the leader is to help shape those aspirations, to get alignment of personal purpose with organizational purpose, to create the environment where people are safe and comfortable, and then to get out of their way and help celebrate how high they fly. Right. I want to come back to the individual purpose point. When you think about creating this environment of generosity, absence of fear or psychological safety, as Google's project Aristotle would call it, right? Like, yep. Of trust, as Patrick Lencioni would call it, it feels so difficult. And it seems so difficult to scale that, to measure it, and to ensure ubiquity of this environment in a large organization, right? You have 25,000 employees. By being the inspiring, you know, giving, you know, inspiring, carousing speeches and reminding all the people you touch of these important things in any given month, I mean, you can hit several thousand of your employees with this message, with a message on any given day, an employee might be exhausted and tired and not really engaging with the speech today, right? Or like yep. engaging with the inspiration today. And so what do you do systematically and structurally to ensure that, gosh, all the way to the entry-level analyst or bank teller, 25,000 people are experiencing and perpetuating a culture of generosity and fear uh, and a lack of fear and kindness, et cetera. So I'm not going to pretend, Ross, that we have the secret formula on this. I think this is an evergreen set of challenges. I think you are. this is an ongoing journey, right? And I think you are just continually trying to get better and better at it, more alignment, et cetera. So that's the starting point. I do think it is important to reinforce continuously the question of asking people, why are you doing what you're doing, right? Why are you here? 
because that gets at this sense of purpose, right? For many people, we don't ask that question very much, right? We simply kind of go about doing our things without really asking ourselves every day, why am I doing what I'm doing? And am I excited about that reason? And there, by the way, Ross, from my perspective, there are no bad answers on why you're doing what you're doing. You just have to have an answer, right? My sense of purpose is I want to help as many people as possible so that they know that they are unconditionally loved and that they can therefore achieve their full potential, right? That's what I'm trying to do every day. Gets me re-energized. My purpose is not any better or any worse than anybody else's. It just happens to be mine, right? I want everybody in our organization to be thinking about why they're doing what they're doing. And I am generally of the view that if people are able to think about that, there is often a common theme, which is I want to make a difference in somebody else's life. That that is often the most meaningful sense of purpose, that someone else's life could be a client. It could be my own family. It could be my community. There are lots of different ways to make a difference in somebody else's life. But I think the more people reflect on that for themselves and they then act on it, even in the imperfect ways that you said, Ross, we all have good days and bad days. But if a great baseball player, if they get three hits out of 10, they're an all-star, right? If I can get our team to be batting at having batting averages, you know, half the time, two-thirds of the time, we're acting with that sense of purpose, that sense of generosity, you're creating a pretty special environment, right? And by the way, if we keep raising the bar and we all get a little bit better, maybe it goes from three quarters of the time to 80% of the time. So that's, I think, why I I view this as an ongoing journey. Tim, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate it. You've talked about individual purpose often, quite a bit, how who we are as a human being translates into what we do at work and how we find an organization whose values reflect our personal values. Can you share more about your thesis, your thoughts on how one can find their individual purpose, A, and then B, how do we then find an organization and a role that allows us to live every day in line with that purpose? So I think, again, I don't think there's any secret sauce on this. I'm not going to pretend to have any magic bullets, but I do think a key element of finding one's sense of purpose is reflecting on your own story over time and really asking yourself, when have I felt the most energy in my life? When have I really been doing something so that it feels like I'm in the what psychologists call flow? It brings me so much joy and so much energy that whatever it is that I'm doing doesn't feel like work. It hardly even feels like play. It's just pure joy. And if you think about that, if you reflect on that in your life and you ask yourself the question, where in my life have I felt that level of energy? Then you can start over time. I mean, for me, it goes back to that story about wanting to be a priest, right? And knowing even at whatever I was, 21, 22 years old, that I got a lot of joy out of helping other people. Now, I didn't have the language at the time, Ross, to call that purpose. I just gravitated toward things which allowed me to do more of that which gave me joy, right? And I think in addition to the reflection on your own life and finding that places where you're in flow, where you're really doing in a joyful spot, and then trying to do more of that, I think that reflection process is critical. But I also think the other piece of this 
is framing our activities in such a way in our own mind and in the stories we share so that they reflect what brings us joy. The typical story, the great story about this is, who knows if this story is actually true, but let me describe it, which is someone asked a bricklayer in the 15th century what they were doing. One bricklayer said, I'm laying bricks. The other bricklayer said, I'm building a wall. The third said, I'm building a cathedral to give glory to God. All of us get the choice every day to think about how we frame whatever it is that we're doing and see if it connects to purpose, right? I could, as someone leading a bank, I could talk a lot about checking accounts and loans. That's not meaningful to me in the same way that talking about powering human potential is. So you got to reflect. You got to see the journey of your life, see what brings you joy and energy. And then you also have to be constantly framing the world and your activities in ways that give you meaning, right? And it's not that any one of those bricklayers had the wrong framing. They were all absolutely accurate. It's just that for each of them, the framing connected to their own sense of purpose in some manner. Right. So I think those two are crucial elements of how one finds purpose and then continues to reinforce it by framing whatever it is that you're doing in a way that connects to your sense of purpose. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. The bricklayer um, story is, I think, such an insightful one, an absolutely beautiful one to share and so relevant on the point. Once you found it, you know, I'll say for our students listening, I'm looking at 20 different financial firms. How do I think through which of these financial firms align with my purpose once they actually have a sense of purpose? Once you found that individually, when you have this ocean of options around you of how you can spend your career and your time, how do you think about applying it looking at organizations? Well, I think this is a really crucial question, Ross, because most of us will only be able to experience that joy of living out our purpose if we are surrounded by other people who have a similar sense of the world, right? So I think if you're a student and you're trying to figure out your purpose and your students, Ross, I have no doubt are more insightful than I was at 21 or 22, but they have some, your students have some intuitive sense at a minimum of what drives them. I think it is very healthy for them to ask the people they're interviewing, why do you come to work every day? What joy do you get out of this, right? And if the answer resonates with the student, that's fantastic. If the answer is, let's take, you know, take some extremes. If your students, Ross, because they're part of Scholars of Finance, are trying to do good in the world through finance, right? And they encounter somebody who says, I come to work every day and I'm trying to maximize how much money I make personally for myself, right? Those are going to be in conflict, right? Because the student's going to say, what I'm jazzed up about is different from what this person seems to get out of work. That's a good thing to know, right? Some people will use a phrase called cultural fit for something like that. I'm not really a huge fan of that phrase, but I think the question is more along the lines of, does my individual purpose align with the organizational purpose? And that would be an extreme example of where someone's individual purpose doesn't align with an organizational purpose. Right, right. 
I would love to dig in here more because my brain immediately goes to, well, how do you avoid a false positive, a false negative? Oh, of course. Like, there's so yeah. much complexity. There's so much complexity, but I think as a, a practical tool and approach, that sounds easy to remember, easy to use, like really easy to gauge internally. It's, it's, um, it's simple. And I think sometimes there is profundity and simplicity. I appreciate you sharing some of those points. I'm curious. I'm going to start asking all of our guests this every single interview. What are some of the paradigms, values, and principles that have most significantly contributed to your success and impact? Well, for me, Ross, uh, something you and I have talked about, for me, there's a huge element of faith in all of this. And people will use different words, and I'm certainly not prescribing my faith for, for anybody else. But I think what is important is that you have some underlying sense of what you're doing is bigger than you, right? And the the notion, you know, people will use different words. You you and I might focus on things like the Beatitudes or the golden rule of doing to others as we would have them do unto us and that sort of thing. But I think it's very tempting for all of us to get fixated on our own individual success, And my own experience is that when you have a bigger view of the world, for me, that comes from faith. It's not about your success at all. And it's not about titles and all of that. And that this is very counterintuitive for people because all of us are sort of coached to believe that we should be associates at consulting firms, then partners, then senior partners, and that guarantees success. And I think, you know, my own faith view and many, many other faiths share a similar thing is. All of those traditional metrics are actually not the way to achieve joy and meaning in life. And the way to achieve joy and meaning is to do something which is bigger than yourself, which is not about your own success. And when you do that, it is amazing the joy and success that you achieve. For me, that sense of faith and underlying notion that we're doing something which is, in my words, living out God's grace, right? That's what we're trying to do. It always reminds me that this is not about Tim. This is not about Tim's success. This is about trying to make the world just a little bit better and trying to make somebody else's life a little bit more meaningful. And in doing that, I am able to experience incredible joy myself. Interesting. It's so interesting. You talk about the importance of serving a purpose greater than yourself. It's funny. That's actually one of our core principles. As you know, at Scholars of Finance, we nest that within humility. One of our six core values of humility to serve a purpose greater than myself, Mm -hmm. right? Predicated on this notion that the ego, this ego needs to be managed. I think it was David Brooks in his book, The Road to Character. Road to Character. Yeah. yeah, Said humility is... Yeah. And I'll, I'll butcher the quote, but I think he essentially said, humility is shifting from the adolescent view of myself as the center of the universe and only thinking about myself in positive yep. terms to zooming out to a mat- taking a mature view of myself fully with accurate self-appraisal, seeing my strengths and my limitations in a broader perspective seeing the landscape around me and the billions of people around me that I share this earth with and keeping myself in right-sized perspective. It's interesting. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I think A, it can buttress us, call it spiritually, call it morally, call it mentally against fear, greed, self-centeredness, all of these sort of core key risks that we intrinsically face in finance, especially when you're dealing with enormous amounts of capital, You know, having a lucrative career. I think fear, greed, self-centeredness can all put us at risk. But the second thing I think this does be, 
I think it also gives us a very durable, lasting source of motivation. I talked to a lot of students in SOF or early career professionals who their goal was to get into a good college or their goal was to graduate college or their goal was to get the job at US Bank or Goldman Sachs or whatever firm. And once they do it, they're suddenly in this like motivational valley, this pit. Yep. Mm-hmm. And okay, now it's what's the next goal? They just have to set some next goal. And it's like, well, if you actually have some purpose, what I tell them is if you have some purpose bigger than you, that you will never even be able to complete in your lifetime. That's right. And you can enjoy the lifelong journey of serving this bigger purpose. You will permanently have the optimal risk-adjusted experience. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> Always up and to the right. You'll never have these crashes because you've hit your goal and now don't know what you exist for anymore. But just love to hear your take and reactions to all that. You're under some very important themes here. You know, First of all, I, I'm a huge David Brooks fan. And I thought The Road to Character is, is a profoundly insightful book. But I also think you're getting at this notion, Ross, of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. And Dan Pink in Drive talks about this a lot, which is many of us, perhaps all of us, grew up in a world where the world seemed to set goals for us, just as you said, get into the best college, work for the best firm, get promoted at some rapid rate, achieve some title right? That's extrinsic motivation. That is somebody else saying to you, here's the goal, you should achieve this. And many of us, myself included, have fallen into times when we are driven by that external motivation. And as you highlight, when you are driven by external motivation, you always cross the finish line, whatever that finish line is, and you feel a sense of exhaustion, not exhilaration. Because it may not be and often is not consistent with who you are as a person and what drives you, right? The reason that I am so excited to come to work every day at U.S. Bank, the reason I am so excited to be involved in my community is because, not because anybody told me to do those things. It's because it aligns with who I am as a human being. And you're absolutely right. I can keep doing all this stuff for a very long time because it doesn't feel like work, right? I think I'm on a dozen nonprofit boards or something. People say, well, that's crazy, right? Nobody can do that. And at some level, it is crazy. But it's also such a source of joy that I can't imagine not doing it. And I think the more that we can shift to internal motivation, irrespective of what the world says, and focus less on those extrinsic motivations, that is what I think keeps all of us incredibly motivated and driven. And Ross, I would highlight, I think it is a critical element that scholars of finance plays. Because if you're going to be intrinsically motivated, you need friends who are thinking about the same thing, thinking about things in the same way, the values-oriented way that you're trying to help students with. You need a support mechanism because the world is giving you all kinds of external motivation or external benchmarks, right? You are trying to cultivate with scholars of finance, a group of people who are trying to make the world a better place through finance. They need each other. And I think a critical part of what you do is create that network that says, I'm going to be intrinsically motivated. And I've fortunately got some friends who share similar values. And that gives me the courage when the external motivations seem so powerful gives me courage to stay focused on that intrinsic motivation. 
Tim, I love it. Tim, as you know, like with you and with Richard, with the two of Richard Davis, of course, yeah. one of our other uh, big supporters at SOF, I could just talk to both you guys about leadership for ages, just forever. I we, we could sh- all be spend time listening to Richard <laughs> yeah. for a very long time about leadership. <laughs> I, I wanted- included. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I appreciate you guys looping me into one of your quarterly calls not too long ago. That was very generous. And I learned a lot. I want to dive into a couple of questions about consumer banking, about philanthropy, and then I want to end on some rapid fire. That sounds good. Okay, sure. Yeah. I, want to, I want to hard pivot us out of this giant tome of leadership that you and I could plunge forever. Over to banking. You are responsible for driving U.S. banks overall consumer and small business and business strategy. Can you tell us a little bit more about the functions of the business? Share the one-on-one summary for the students and early career professionals listening in particular, and share some details and interesting points that very senior finance executives listening might find novel or interesting too. We're talking about, in our group, we have the basics of banking, mortgages, auto loans, things like that, right? The way we talk about it, Ross, is we start with purpose. Why are we here? We're here to invest our hearts and minds to power human potential, okay? If that is our purpose, how do we do that? We need to become what we call central to the lives of our clients. Central is about how am I important to you? My guess is, Ross, you can think of things, everybody on this podcast can think of things in their life that are important to them. Probably have an app on your phone for them, right? How do we become important to you? Because if all we are is a mortgage bill that you pay once a month, we are not powering your human potential. We are an annoyance, right? Because you have to send us thousands of dollars. So we've got to be relevant. So how do we become relevant? We do that through a combination of digital plus human. We've got to be great at the digital side because everybody wants great digital tools. But most importantly, we've got thousands of U.S. bankers who are deeply caring people and who, if you form a connection with them, you will experience what it's like to have your potential powered, right? So it's that combination, great digital plus great human connection allows us to become central to help make a difference in the lives of your family. So for many of your students, Ross, they will initially get fixated, well, am I going to work in the mortgage business or am I going to work in a branch and things like that? What I want to do for them is try to paint that picture of you're part of something which is bigger than that, bigger than you. And those mechanisms, those accounts are a means of helping achieve that purpose. Right, right. What's one thing that some of the senior executives listening might find surprising or insightful about the consumer and the business banking world? Well, I think part of what they would find different is that we don't just talk about the numbers. It's very tempting when you're in a senior executive role to focus entirely on, did I meet my plan? Have my capital investments returned the ROI that was expected from them? All of that stuff is important. And I want to be crystal clear that we do pay attention to that stuff. But we also pay attention to the stories. And one of the things that I'm a big fan of is collecting and sharing stories about how we made a difference in the life of a family or a business and sharing those stories on video, having those clients come to our meetings, et cetera, because we need to connect with that why. And I think too often, I'm a victim as much as the city, too often as a senior executive, you can get caught up in the rational side and forget the stories. And it's really the stories which motivate people. They don't get motivated by, I need $100 million more loans. They get motivated by, 
I need to help five more businesses grow. And if we do that, we get more loans. That's super interesting that you need to motivate people in the right way. I want to shift towards innovation as well. As you know, I worked at SoFi before stepping into Mm -hmm. Scholars of Finance full-time. We always talked about innovation being our winning edge, that we could innovate and win share from large incumbent banks. You know, When I was at SoFi, I was trying to win customers from US Bank and all the other major major retail banks. US Bank has continued to grow and gain share amidst an environment rife with fintech and innovation. How do you innovate and adapt to change both internally and externally? to stay competitive when the firm is so large and there's just so much to try to to wrestle with. Our teams are amazing, Ross, at doing the most important thing, which is in innovation, which in my view is listening to clients. The way you discover ideas is you listen to clients and truly deeply understand what their needs are, and then you innovate ideas to address them. So I'll give you a specific example. If anybody who's ever bought a house knows that that is a really painful process. Getting a mortgage has historically been really painful. Our teams over many years have been listening to our clients and thinking about all the different ways that we could simplify that. So we now have a process you can do on your phone, Ross, and you can close electronically and stuff. It is massively simpler than the first time I bought my house. And in doing that, what we allow our clients to do is focus on what's important. What's important is moving their family into a home. A mortgage is a mechanism to that. By making it easy to do, we allow them to focus on what is joyful, which is their home. And we support them in a very simple, easy way through a digital process and a mortgage loan officer that helps them celebrate that exciting new thing. So that's an example of how really listening to the clients allows us to innovate in a way that truly helps them achieve, in this case, their goal of home ownership. Thanks, Tim. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. I want to shift into our rapid fire round. I want to hit you with three rapid fire questions. Just hit me with whatever comes to your mind first. I know you only have a few minutes left. First, on time management, you're a very noteworthy leader in financial services, but also in philanthropy. You mentioned you almost sit on a dozen nonprofit boards in healthcare, financial literacy, the arts. You've talked about what drives you to personally give back, but How do you balance all the commitments, balance your time, manage your time when you have so much that you have to oversee? Key thing for me is to focus only and do only the things that I am uniquely positioned to do. If somebody else can do something, they should do it. I should only do the things that I am uniquely positioned to do. Sometimes that means setting strategy in the business. Sometimes it means facilitating a contentious meeting among different nonprofit groups. And sometimes it means sitting in the stands cheering my daughter on during one of her diving meets. I'm her only dad and only I can do that. And that's a pretty important priority. And so that's what I try to focus on, Russ. If I am not uniquely qualified to do it, then I shouldn't be doing it. I suppose that bodes well for the notion that you should hire people better and smarter than you at something. <laughs> well, fortunately, <laughs> I'm scale by those people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> High bar. All right. Two more rapid fire questions. First, what are one or two top books that you've read that you'd recommend anyone and everyone read? So many. We've actually touched on a number of this in, in this. Uh, I think Road to Character is an outstanding one. I would also encourage people to read Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, which I think is a hugely powerful book. I loved Give and Take. It 
totally reframed how I think about generosity. Tim, final question here, a bit of a layup, uh, softball, if you will. You have supported and championed scholars of finance for years. You've been generous with your time as a speaker, as one of our alpha investors personally, and U.S. Bank as a firm is one of our first founding partners of scholars of finance. You, Andy Ciceri, Reba Dominski, Gunjan Kedia, gosh, so many leaders at U.S. Bank have been involved as speakers, as mentors, giving back to this organization. Can you share a bit about why you and the firm believe in our mission, why all of you decide to support this mission, and why you'd encourage others to support the mission of Scholars of Finance? I think this is all about values, Ross. You are an amazing and inspiring leader, and what you are building is a group of students across the country who are trying to make the world better through finance. How could we not be supportive of you if we are, in fact, waking up every morning to try to power human potential? The alignment of purpose and values between scholars of finance and U.S. Bank is almost a complete overlap of the Venn diagrams. Well, thanks, Tim. Thank you. Appreciate that very much. Tim, thank you so much for your time today. We'll have to have you on again. I have a thousand questions we didn't get a chance to get to. I want to thank you and say how insightful well, this has been. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the remarkable leadership you provide to scholars of finance. It's an inspiration to all of us. Well, it's a team effort. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate you very much, sir. Cheers. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.